Hello, it's Richard Herring here. Welcome to my podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. And my stand-up tour is about to begin. Can I have my ball back? First stand-up tour in six years. Many of you just know me from the podcast. Don't know, I've done 14 or 15 stand-up tours in my own right. I'm a brilliant stand-up comedian. And can I have my ball back? I think it's my best show ever. That's what the audiences are saying. It's about testicular cancer, but it's funny because testicles are funny, even though cancer isn't. Uh, I'm really pleased with it. I'd love you to come and see it. Bring your friends. Some of the shows selling really well. Some of them selling really badly. It's a traditional Richard Herring tour. But here's where I'm going to be. 2nd of May, Thursday at the Luton Hat Factory. It's a small venue, but there are still tickets left. 3rd of May, I'm at the Berry Hedge End, which is near Southampton. That's looking more full, but still some availability. 8th of May, I'm at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's about 10 tickets left for that one, though I am back at the Leicester Square Theatre in June. And then I'm at St Albans on the 9th, Gloucester on the 10th. Chorley Little Theatre on the 11th, that's sold out, but you can join the waiting list. And then the 12th of May, I'm at Glasgow, afternoon show sold out. Evening show, extra show, put on, still with tickets. And then there's lots more. Go to richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs. And now enjoy whatever podcast I've given you. It's free. It's all for you. If you want to pay me back, buy a book, come and see a show. That's all I've got to say to you. Love you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, the city of Colchester. What a city last time I was here. Welcome to the Mercury Theatre. Please welcome a man who's feeling dizzy, but he's still coming on. It's Richard Herry. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Oh, lovely to be back. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with this beautiful theatre, beautiful city. I've been walking around today having a lovely time. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I might collapse. I'm a little bit dizzy. Let's see what happens. Luckily, I'm sitting down for most of the show, but uh, it should be fine. Welcome to Richard Herring's Legendary Sight of a Table podcast. Uh, Some people believe uh, Colchester is the site of Camelot, the legendary court of King Arthur. He had a round table. I was trying to do... I nearly did spherical table. I thought it's close. No. Uh, It used to be called Camelodinum. So, you know, that's Camelot. It could be. If only I had an historian on who could say what a lump of shit that idea was. (laughs) Let's see what happens. It was Britain's first Roman city, Pliny the Elder. (laughs) Named it. I'm going to just give you a lot of facts about uh, Colchester. It's very very exciting. Although I was was, uh, hanging around uh, with the big lady outside the Fenwick uh, (laughs) earlier today. uh, Trying to chat her up. Didn't say a word to me. It's because I'm too short, isn't it? It's always the tall girls. Don't give me the time of day. Um, she didn't say anything, but the man with the cup said he called it Rallastopper. So don't know if that's going to catch on. Uh, here's some facts about uh, Colchester. Yeah, in the 2021 census, it says there's 130,245 people living in Colchester. Not bad. I would just, if I was you, I'd be trying to make it one, two, three, four, five, six, wouldn't you? It's so close. And you know, you'd only have to kill 6,789 people. Six, seven, eight, nine. I mean, that's freaky, right? It'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven, eight, nine. Fuck. It's almost worth doing, isn't it? I can, I can find 7,000 of you worth killing. Um, not only do you pretend King Arthur came here, it didn't exist. Uh, you also think that three nursery rhymes came from Colchester. Absolute bullshit. Old King Cole. 
Humpty Dumpty, which I either named after a cannon, which was I thought, or a royalist sniper called One-Eyed Thompson, <laughs> who fell off a tower. You know all about this guy, One-Eyed Thompson? Did he have one eye, or was he just, like, called that because he was always looking down the rifle with his one eye? I don't know, no, no, I see him. Right, I'm going to ask you some questions, Colchester, because uh, I, I Google Colchester, and then you, when you Google something, a load of questions come up. And so I'm going to let the people of Colchester just answer these questions for the people who are Googling Colchester. Uh, first question that came up was, is Colchester worth a visit? <laughs> it's slightly passive-aggressive, isn't it? Is it worth it? No. I think it is. It's good. There's a big water tower and stuff. And some Roman stuff. Uh, second question, what's special about Colchester? Uh, is Colchester a nice place to live? No, no yeah, seems all right. Um, my favourite question, is Colchester classed as London? No, it's not. <laughs> Dream on, Colchester. Just because you've been made a city. Um, uh, no, this, again, just some facts for you. Uh, in the book 1984, Colchester was the scene of a nuclear detonation. <laughs> so George Orwell fucking hates you guys, isn't it? It's, I don't know what he did to George Orwell. That's like when I play Civilization, you can get yeah, the atomic bomb comes. It's really good fun to blow up places you don't like. So, never blown up Colchester, but I'll give it a go. Um, Darren Day was born here. More about him next week. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Bud- 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 Bodicea, uh, so loved the place. Uh, she destroyed it in AD 61. Uh, someone buried their treasure underneath Fenwick, didn't they? Then got killed. Very exciting, very interesting find that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the, the greatest person, greatest woman, I think, in English history, certainly one of the great heroes of English history, came to Colchester and just levelled the place. <laughs> I think that says a lot. All right, so um, let's crack on. We've got a fantastic guest for you uh, this week. Uh, she's probably best known for playing Mary Beard uh, on the TV show W1A. <laughs> I wonder how she came up with that crazy character. Will you please welcome Mary Beard, ladies and gentlemen. Mary Beard. Oh. Can sit down. Mary Beard. Actual Mary Beard. Hello, Mary Beard. Oh, it's great to be here. It's lovely to be here. What, would you, what were you doing on W1A? What, do you uh, remember that? I had acting? a cameo role. Yes. Um... Uh, in, uh, that, that meant I didn't have to say anything. Okay. Uh, we were... It, the scene was a party, a kind of BBC party, and I was, you know, receiving glasses of wine, etc., etc. And then the Welsh woman, whose name I can't now remember, came up and started to talk to me. And her punchline was, well, we can't all look like Lucy Worsley, can we? Oh. <laughs> And I was very brave. Yeah, very brave. <laughs> well, so I, I, in the last year's Rahalistapas, thank you, uh, I'd, I'd grown my hair pretty long, as long as your hair, and uh, I decided to get cut when someone said you look like Mary Beard. So there you go. It's, um, and we, which I take as a compliment. But I, the problem as a, an, an ageing man with hair is you do start to look like someone's nan. That's the problem... <laughs> So that's, that's the issue. I don't think you get the kind of shit that I get. Though, <laughs> no, you know? that's, that's definitely <laughs> true. <laughs> definitely true. Um, well, th- this is going to be a, this is going to be a Rahalastaba book club. It's a, very, yeah, it's a very refined... So we're going to talk... Uh, not, we'll talk outside of this as well, but we'll, we'll talk about your book. First of all, I have to ask you, is Colchester really the, uh, the site of Camelot, the legendary made-up court of King Arthur? <laughs> You don't really want me to answer. I'd really do. do <laughs> in fact, I said to him in the green room, "Don't ask me about Camelot." You know, well, I was obviously an utter provocation. <laughs> uh, but I think if you want a quick answer, yeah. it's no. Okay, no. Right? Okay. Probably no. We know, but no one's sure. Um, no one can be sure about it. If you find a big round table under, I, I'm sure. Uh, under, I think I'm. I am sure. sure? Okay. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, oh, and, Camelot never existed, so it can't yeah. be, you know. I mean, you know, that's... You know, they can prove anything with facts, can't you? That's, the, the, um, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> prove 
prove things with facts. But b- big Roman history, Bo- Bodicea. I know you don't know about yeah. that. No, yeah, I thought I did want to kind of pick you up on one thing. Yeah, Boudica. Well, no, that? not that, actually. I mean, we don't know what she called herself. Okay. I mean, the Romans called her Boadicea, and I rather like that, but probably it was Vodica or whatever. Okay. But we don't know whether it was 61 or 62 AD. Oh, okay. And that means a lot. It does mean that a lot. That means a lot to some of us. Well, you, you know, you've been working on it a long time. You should know by now, Mary. That's what I should have worked it out. Look, I know that I don't know. Because <laughs> I've been working on it for a very long time, right? Even with Pompeii, you don't know what the date of Pompeii's eruption was, for sure. That's no, we don't. Though. I mean, we always used to say it was in August. Yeah. August 79. And that's because, you know, your friend Pliny... Pliny... Um, well, we thought he said it was in August 79. You know, he might have done, but, it, you know, the manuscripts are very, you know, the technical stuff this, yeah. are a bit dubious. This is actually quite an interesting point about new archaeology because archaeologists have discovered that they can capture the seeds and the flora and fauna yeah. that were in the environment at the moment that Pompeii was destroyed. And it looks much more like October. Right. right? <laughs> now, I got into terrible trouble once with a load of bioarchaeologists saying, didn't actually think it made very much difference. You know? <laughs> August, October, I mean... Same year, and it's completely nuked. But it's nice to give the people another couple of months of life, isn't it? At, I, least, I, at least they lived a couple more months before they got evaporated. Well, you know, maybe. So maybe October's better. But, okay. but uh, you know, I, it's, it just shows how clever archaeologists now are. It's unbelievable. I can't believe that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I've had a few people on the, on the book club who are bio, bioarchaeologists uh, and uh, <laughs> bioarchaeologists. Uh, and uh, yeah, the teeth. You can tell where you can tell where that, people were born from what's in their teeth. That is what is really amazing. Yeah. That the the traces of the environment that you were living in when your permanent teeth were forming, uh, you know, underneath your yeah. milk teeth, uh, remain in your mouth forever. Uh, Tis yeah. truly amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and underground, when your teeth go underground. And when they remain forever. You don't have to be alive. They're still there. Uh, and so you can say, um, it's not quite as precise as some people like to think, but you can say that, um, if we were to take Colchester, for example, um, you could say this person spent their formative years in a place that wasn't so cold and rainy yeah. as Colchester. Now, that could have been the Isle of Wight, or it could have been the south of France. Yeah. But you, you can actually track them, track, track their environmental history. It is amazing. Colchester's one of the uh, least wet places in the United Kingdom. I just, so that's one of the facts that I... One of the facts that I didn't that give you before this. can't be true. It's because of the, it's the temperate weather comes across the channel. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I've just been It's on here. Wikipedia. That's as, far, that's as far as my research on Colchester went. Um, let's talk about... Look, I, I've always loved your books. I think I've, I, I think I've got all of your books. But I may be wrong, but I've... Uh, it took me a long time to read SPQR. I bought SPQR in four formats, I think. I did finally. I did finally. <laughs> Don't put the audience off. <laughs> it was good. It's just it's, there's a it lot. There's a good. lot there. It's too good. There's a lot there. Yeah. And I, I think if I when I get to I, when I find the audio book is when I finally settled. So the audio book is a way to get through. Because look, there's a that's a lot of reading. That's in the new one. That's the I, new I bought, one. So. I bought a copy too. No, there's two of these. Yeah, just two. Um, so, but I love this book, The Emperor of, uh, of Rome, um, which is. Uh, will you explain what, 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 what would you say is, is the, what you're doing here? What it does is, I mean, I think it's, it's surprisingly radical, though I think you won't sound that when I say. Um, it says, look, how do, how do we get taught to study the Roman Empire? You know, you know Julius Caesar, the Emperor Augustus, Tiberius, etc. We get taught to kind of mug up 
individual emperors, one by one, you know, Augustus, the founder of the dynasty, Tiberius, the hypocrite, Caligula, the psychopath, Claudius, the studious old doffer, Nero, the narcissist, you know, and so on. And we do it biographically. Now, some of that's, it can be quite fun, but I think it's also terribly sort of exclusive. I mean, I think we were taught, I was taught, you know, to think that, you know, you couldn't understand the Roman Empire uh, and how it was ruled if you didn't know when Marcus Aurelius came and whether he was before Antoninus, Pius or not. Yeah. Now, um, what I wanted to say in this book is, look, these individual guys don't matter very much. If you don't know whether Marcus Aurelius came before Antoninus Pius, he was actually after, but, um, it, well, you're in the same boat as most Romans, yeah. honestly, because they didn't know the order of the emperors. They didn't know these individual micro-histories. So instead of saying, you know... <sighs> You know, and now we're on to Galba, of whom no one has heard, you know. <laughs> um, why not say, look, actually, they're much of a muchness, honestly. They're, these emperors, one after the next, are more similar than they are different. And you can ask much more interesting questions, like, so what did they do all day? You know, what did they eat? Uh, you can, who did they sleep with? How did they get around? Who did the filing in the imperial palace, right? Um, and you can say, well, really, really it's a, a book which sort of reconstructs the job description yeah. of being a Roman emperor. How did they get their letters? You know, something nasty was happening in Colchester. How the hell did they deal with it? Yeah. Um, and for me, that's just so much more interesting than wondering about, you know, what happened in 61 or 62. Yes. You know? Well, you're the one who brought that up. No, I know. Uh, I did, because <laughs> that is true. Because I I'm should all, have just said that when you said that to me. Yeah, so just I, more, I'm more interested you know, in how just, they found out. Just occasionally, you know, a little bit of pedantry <laughs> escapes. But the book tries to be non-pedantic and to say, wow, you know, that... How do you picture a Roman emperor? Well, we kind of usually picture him, and they're all him, um, you know, doing naughty things in swimming pools. And well, they did a bit of that, I think, probably a little bit of that. But mostly, they sit, you know, what do they do? They sit answering letters all day. Yeah. And, you know, the, the naughty things in the swimming pools are only what they do in the very, very few hours of the day that they're not writing letters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, the book makes it clear, and if you think about it for a second, it's obviously a pretty hor horrible job, despite, despite having all the, you know, the, the power, supposedly. Um, you know, there's, it's... You, the chances of you being knocked off are, uh, are, are pretty they're, high. They're, so. they're, yeah, they don't usually end well. No. A few of them end well. And that's, of course, quite interesting because the Roman Empire, one-man rule, the autocracy of Rome, is terribly resilient as a system. Yeah. You know, from Julius Caesar, well, in, if you take the East, you know, up to the 15th century, um, nobody really challenges that idea of uh, one-man rule as being the way to do it. But they challenge individual rulers all the time. Yes. Right? And, you know, m more of them end badly than kind of, um, you know, float away on their bed feeling a bit dizzy. You know, yeah. that's not what <laughs> most Roman emperors do, I'm afraid. You know, I'd, I'd quite unless, like to go float away on my bed talking to Mary Beard. That's quite, that would be quite a good death if it happens. Put the podcast down. They're all kind of amazing. I mean, their last words are always extraordinary. I'll give you one totally unknown Roman emperor, but who has some really poignant last words. Um, it's the Emperor Gator, of whom nobody has heard. Um, who was a short-term ruler with his brother Caracalla, who decided to get rid of him. In fact, they'd already quarrelled, 
So they divided the imperial palace up into a kind of multiple occupancy palace, putting a wall down so that Caracalla had one half and Gator had the other half. Um, And in the end, Caracalla decides to get rid of Gator, and he does it while Gator is sitting, he's quite a young lad, on his mother's lap in the palace. And Gator's (laughs) last words, and I don't know whether this is complete pathetic pathos or whether it's really tragic. Gator's last words were apparently, mummy, mummy, I'm being murdered. (laughs) One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, the, the stories are there. You, you, you do detail. I mean, I, this again, I mean, you know, I thought I knew a bit about Rome, but I, 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 it's, I, this, you talk about a lot of empress I've never heard of. Hello, uh, Gabalus. Hello, Gabalus. My favourite, my very favourite. Yeah. So uh, he's a good example. He's a, a very young uh, He's a teenager. Emperor, he's, he's 14 teen, to 18. Teen, yes. Uh, and, uh, but the stories about him are kind of wild. The, the, the the various ways, the things he did to entertain himself. From and they're they're wonderfully wild and totally, I'm sure, totally untrue, but totally revealing at the same time. I mean, yeah. when, when Mr. Trump was president, and I'm going to say for the first time, hoping that that isn't a awful <laughs> prophecy, um, all kinds of journalists used to ring up. It was the age of the phone back then. And um, they would say, what Roman emperor is Donald Trump most like? Yeah. And I would always say Elagabalus. <laughs> and I did that not because I actually I thought even Trump was like Elagabalus, but because I thought no one's ever heard of Elagabalus. <laughs> so you know, and the journalists would say, Ella, uh, that's spelt with a, with a G. Uh, and I knew they'd then have to go and Google him, you know, so... Um, uh, and so I kind of became quite fond of Elagabalus for that reason. But he is, you know, he is the classic awful emperor who rules in the early 3rd century CE for just four years. And, you know, if you think Nero and Caligula are, are bad, you know, they're pussycats compared with Elagabalus. And he... You know, he has an Imelda Marcos tendency. Yeah. He never wears the same pair of shoes twice, right? Um, he's also a bit of a jokester, because he's only a kid, really. So he invents the whoopee cushion. That's one of his inventions. You go to dinner with Elagabalus, and you've, you're sitting on inflatable cushions. And he has his slaves go round and let the air out of the cushions while you're sitting there, um, and you end up on the floor. And, you know, he's, he's actually pretty kind of um, uh, adventurous with his kind of dinner regime. So he has things like all blue dinners, everything is blue, or all red dinners, or he only invites... Um, uh, all his guests have got hernias. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can see, I mean, so he's a teenager. Um, 
or, or they're all very, very fat, so they can't fit on the couches. Yeah. And then everybody has a huge laugh when they kind of fall off, right? Um, but his, his most famous um, trick was uh, he invites his friends to dinner, and at the end of the evening, like Romans often did, he had rose petals showered over them from the ceiling. Except in Elagabalus's case, um, he was so generous with the rose petals that they smothered and died. Right? <laughs> now, I, I'm going to allow myself one academic point here. That uh, mostly people, scholars, have spent fruitlessly the time they've devoted to Elagabalus trying to work out whether this could possibly be true. Now, I think it's much easier to say none of this is true. This is, this is a construction of a bad emperor. But, and this in some ways is, you know, is the serious point in the book, um, that what these stories do is they say, how do people imagine what an emperor does at the absolute extremes? And what does that tell you? And I think the rose petal story is quite nice and it's quite a serious one um, because it's saying, look, when emperors try to be generous, they kill you. <laughs> you, know? you know, they really do kill with kindness. And there's this kind of... So you get there that kind of sense that it's all jolly japes and it's good celebrity gossip, etc., etc. but there's an underlying point yeah. that... You know, you, that the emperor is... Ne you can't trust the emperor even when he's being nice to you. And I suppose, you know, it, it's... Anyone put in that position, especially like a teenager, would behave awfully. Uh, but anyone who was given that amount of power and that amount of, you know, that they could do things like that, they could invite, they could do pranks, and they could do... They could... You know, have orgies and they could do whatever they want. They they'd be tempted to push things to extremes. Well, that's the uh, fantasy. That's what yeah. we think. You know, and like then, Marcos. Then, so then, if all the stories, if you're if you are an emperor, and then they say, well, this is what happened to this Caligula who did all this, then you might go, oh well, maybe I won't do that because then I'll end up yeah. being murdered. In I mean, way. I, you know, I sometimes I think Elagabalus was probably a sort of you know, a little sweetie pie who hadn't grown up, you know, did, yeah. did get married four times, but, you know, never, we don't quite know whether, why they didn't work, why it didn't work out. Yeah. Um, but it's, in a, in a sense, it's telling you about ordinary Romans much more than Elagabalus. Just, yeah. you know, just like what we say about Harry and Meghan tells us much more about us than it does about them. Yeah. Some of it may be true, some of it isn't true, we don't know, but... How do we imagine we would behave if we were Harry? Yeah. And I think there's, you know, how do we imagine that we would behave if we could sleep with anybody in the world? We had so much money and power, we could do anything that we wanted yeah. to. You could just grab them by the pussy, couldn't you? That's what, that's what you could do. Think, and then you I think Ella Gabalus did a bit of grabbing <laughs> by the pussy. I think that, but, you know, you that do see in you know, more modern history, you do see people abusing the, yeah. the position of power. So some of these Roman emperors, there's going to be some truth in it, right? They're probably... <laughs> There's probably an, a, a little scintilla of truth in some of it. So in, in some of it. I, you know, I think the issue, though, is, you know, you can sit down and you can spend a lifetime trying to work out which of these stories is true or not, and you still won't know at the end of it. Right. So I think it's much more interesting to say, why are they telling that story? What's that story about? Yeah. You know? and, and then you start, you really do get a kind of insight into the... The power of the emperor. I mean, Nero is a good example of this, you know, because Nero, you know, his big fault was wanting to be an actor, right? That's what Nero wanted to be. 
wanted to be on stage, he wanted to be a liar player, etc. And he was so desperate to have an audience that he would do things like, I mean, I hope this isn't happening here, by the way, he would lock the doors of yeah. the theatre okay. so you couldn't get out till he'd finished, right? <laughs> as long as you've got their money, they can go when they're like, that's, 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 that's <laughs> off you go. Yeah, Nero, I think, gave it for free. Um, <laughs> how unlike us. Um, uh, but... Uh, but there was said to be, you know, women gave birth in the theatre because they couldn't get out. Uh, and, you know, men pretended to be dead so that they could be kind of uh, wheeled out. And, you know, all of this, I have to say, they're jolly good japes and they're good stories. And then you think, a bit like with the Elagabala story, what underlies that? You know, what's that about? And I think it's about something that we still think about. It's about, is the emperor... Just an actor? What do we think the emperor is? Maybe it's all a charade. And I thought that very, very strongly. Uh, I don't know if you remember this photograph, but when Rishi Sunak was photographed um, filling up his car with petrol, right? And he was trying to say to us, we're all in the same boat with rising fuel prices. Right, and we looked at this car... And, you know, it was much smaller than anything that Sunak would ever drive. He clearly didn't really know how to work a petrol pump, <laughs> let alone, you know, where you went to pay for the petrol. And, uh, uh, and the photograph became a sign that he was just pretending. You know, he's like one of, he isn't like us. He's just acting up with a borrowed car, not quite knowing where you put the thing in the you know in the whatever you know and I thought we're we still have that problem you know is is he just is all of Sunak just pretense and how do we feel about that and that's the same story as the Nero story yeah you know that is and I think you're talking about how the you know the image of each Caesar and uh, each emperor um you know, the statues and stuff are basically the same one with a bit chipped off and, you know, they don't, they don't even bother making a new one. They just make it look a bit more like the other guy, but they look so yeah. similar it doesn't really uh, matter. They're much better than us, much more imaginative about yeah. kind of cancel culture. <laughs> you know, you've got, you know, Nero, there he is, got, you know, you've just commissioned in, you know, could be Colchester, you've just commissioned a nice new statue of Nero. Um, then Nero's overthrown, you know, n- new man on the block is, you know, completely different in political style from Nero, and you've just spent all this money on your Nero statue, what do you do? You get a chisel out and you turn it into the face of the next guy, right? And um, in a way that's saying, you know, emperors are much of a muchness. You know, just get, you know, if you want to change one into the next, just needs a bit of tap away with a chisel. Yeah. You know, we get terribly, you know, worried about it. You know, should we uh, take this statue down, put it in the river, put it in a museum, whatever? We could just chip away and turn it into somebody else. Yeah. yeah I wanted well, to do that with Colston. Yeah, you know. do you want to change Colston into yeah, Lenny Henry? Well, Lenny Henry, I mean, you know, that would have been, that would have been appropriate. <laughs> not, not inappropriate. Instead, we get all in a tiz, you know. Yeah. Maybe we should just... You know, take the chisel out. Yeah. Um, I mean, but again, I suppose that they must have known that, though. So each emperor must have known that that happened to the last emperor, that they did that to the last emperor. A, they know they killed the last emperor, so someone's going to kill them. B, they know they chiseled the face off the last emperor, so someone's <laughs> going to do it to them. So occasionally there'll be, you know, what I think is remarkable, especially about the Roman era, because it's so long ago, uh, and then we look at medieval times, and especially certainly early medieval times, they're so little... Yeah. source material and stuff, with this book and with your podcast that you've, that you've recently done, you can find out so much about individuals and things because, and, you know, I suppose Augustus is it with yeah. the, the big, this is what I did. Yeah. He'll put that up so that he knows that that survives after he dies. Yeah, the, you know, first proper emperor, Julius Caesar, is not quite, isn't quite an emperor yet. But Augustus, first, you know, emperor, emperor who establishes the regime, you know, he puts up a vast inscription on his tomb, outside his tomb, saying exactly what he did as a sort of job description for the future. Yeah. And uh, it's, there's a huge amount of chutzpah there. 
But I think the, the thing that I kind of came to see was that you look at these guys, and it is partly about power. It's, it's part, you know, you're partly looking at people trying to establish themselves. But you also, through these emperors, you see in wonderful kind of, and through a magnifying lens, you see the lives of the ordinary people of Rome too. And, and you partly do that because um, Roman emperors, you know, one of the brand images of the Roman emperor is that he should solve everybody's problems, right? You know, the Roman emperor is there for you, right? Now, it's a bit of a myth, but it's quite an important myth. In Rome, you know, so Hadrian goes out one day on his horse, and a peasant woman comes up to him and says, "Excuse me, Emperor, I've got I've got a problem." And he says, "Too busy, sorry, too busy." She says, "If you're too busy for me, you're too busy to be emperor." Right? So you are seeing, partly because they're written down on papyrus or inscriptions, you know, people are bringing their problems to to Roman emperors, and through their eyes. You see, well, you see the kind of nightlife, for example, in towns of the Roman world where nasty things happen. You know, and there's an example I use in this, which um, you know, always kind of seemed to me to be, you know, just a wonderful idea of what sort of thing the Roman emperor has to deal with, uh, because a case comes to Augustus from the city of Canidos, which is on the coast of modern Turkey. And basically, it's a case of two families in the city roughing each other up. And at a certain point, one family, when their house is being attacked by the other, say to the slave, their slave, go upstairs and throw the contents of that chamber pot over those guys' heads. Right? Yeah. That'll send them up. You know, that'll send them packing. Right? The slave does it. But the slave also drops the chamber pot, which kills one of the guys underneath, right? Now, the local authority says homicide, right? And the slave isn't prosecuted for homicide. His owners are prosecuted for homicide. They somehow, hundreds of miles away, they take this case to Augustus and say, we're being prosecuted for homicide and we're going to put it to you. You know, you've got this image of this town racked with um, well, flying chamber pots and you know, a whole lot of other things. Yeah. And then Augustus sits down, or some, some kind of um, advisor of Augustus, sits down, reads through the documents, decides what to do, and says, actually, I don't think it's homicide, I think it's justifiable self-defence. Right? Yeah. And they get off. Yeah. Now, you think, that's the Roman emperor. You know, and our image of the Roman emperor is kind of, uh, you know, directing major issues of military policy. I think I'm going to invade Dacia, you know, this kind of stuff. Actually, they're dealing with cases of falling chamber pots. <laughs> you know, and that is the bread and butter of what they do day after day. It's not invading Dacia. It's... It, it's chamber pots and their contents. But how does, you know, obviously not everything surviving. How does, does, does the story of that, that, that survive just through chance or is it because it's a funny story or is it, you know, just that that's, it, we happen to find that piece of papyrus? It survives because the people who Augustus says, not guilty, yeah. you're not guilty, it's justifiable self-defence, they go back home and they get a great block of marble, <laughs> and they inscribe, or they have inscribed on it, yeah. Augustus's uh, judgment. Because they want to say to the people in their town, he let us off. So you get this kind of sense of, this is what the emperor said to me, and we can now, it happens to survive, and we can read it. Yeah. And, and people, I think, often get the impression because... Well, ancient historians, modern ancient historians, are quite good at keeping some of the best bits to themselves. You know, people think it's only... Um, we only know about these people through... You know, big historians, Tacitus or the biographer Suetonius. That we've got scraps of evidence yeah. from everywhere, you know. And sometimes it's Roman Egypt, it's on papyrus. But often it's 
on inscriptions where people are so keen to say that the emperor came down on their side that they spend hundreds of quid, basically. Well, it must have been hundreds of quid, having the judgment inscribed. Yeah. And it's a window onto the world of the Roman people that we think we don't have. It's sort of amazing that they did that. I mean, in the podcast, I don't know, is it, is it a podcast or a radio series? But it's, I listen to it's it as a podcast. Both. Yeah, it's, it's both. both. The BBC um, no longer really... No, I shouldn't say this, because I'll be quoted. <laughs> the, the BBC are as a wonderful institution, and they're getting into podcasts. Yes. But they are also Radio 4 programmes. Yes. So it's called Being Roman. And with that, you know, there's... I think, like, often on a tomb, there's so much more information than you would imagine would be put on it. You know, what we get on our tomb is when we were born, when we died, if we had a kid. Yeah. You know, it might be one word about what yes. we did. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the, you, the, these tombs that Richard often turn Herring up... comedian. Yeah, maybe. Right. Comedian in inverted but commas. commas. <laughs> <laughs> if, if Twitter's allowed to write my my gravestone, um, but you know, like a lot of these things are found, and I like they're sort of found in walls and things and bits of masonry. So you know, they, you... they were often you know Roman tombstones are often found reused because they're good blocks of marble, yeah. and somebody comes along later, builds them into a medieval church, and then we find them, you know hundreds of years after that. But they're terribly loquacious. No, I mean, wonderfully loquacious. Yeah. Um, and the, the series we did on Radio 4, which you can still get on sounds, um, just took some of these and said, look, you know, here, one of my favourites, was a tombstone of an 11-year-old lad yeah. who had not quite but nearly won a poetry competition. Right? <laughs> In front of the Emperor Domitian, not a nice emperor. Um, and he, he was aged 11, and he then fell down dead. It's mum and dad on the tombstone say that he's brilliant, he had an absolutely fantastic career, but he died of overwork, right? Now, you kind of think he probably died of pushy parents, would be more like. Yeah. But what they do is they got a picture of him on the tombstone, and he's looking all very posh in his toga. And uh, then they praise him to the skies. Most of the tombstone is actually covered with the text of the poem that he nearly won the competition yeah. with. Right? And it's the only poem by a child that survives from the ancient world. And it's, it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's better than what I could do. It was you did it in Greek, you know, it's, and and improvised. Uh, apparently improvised. Yeah. Uh, what I can understand if it was improvised, where do they get the text from? <laughs> huh? stone, the guy with the stone. Yeah, was go quickly, it yes, write it down. Maybe then, he had to do that's what killed him. He had to do it as he was improvising. He had to, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's performing in front of thousands, and you know, you suddenly see the world of the ambitious family. The kid, you know, yeah. and it's it's the kind of thing that that we've always been taught to say um, doesn't survive from the ancient world. All you can get from the ancient world, people say, is you know you get the stories of you know generals and emperors. And it's always the posh white guys that you know about. Actually, the the kind of evidence that you get goes right down to eleven-year-old poets, or you know. Women whose who's kind of childlessness is lamented on their tombstone. I mean, there's kind of issues about fertility um, paraded, you know, in their epitaphs. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's lovely. I mean, it's the kind of history I love, it's extraordinary. But it's exciting to think, I mean, both the, the things you mentioned, I think the, those two were, or, or certainly a couple of the, the ones in, the, in this radio series, were sort of discovered you know, when, like, walls fell down or when, when things were blown up and then they, they're inside stuff. Yeah. So there's presumably loads of these, yeah. uh, these monuments hidden away in various yeah. places that will be discovered. And, and also documents. I know in Herculaneum, they're just, you know, there's that library full of... Uh, there is. It's, that they're the, starting to decode. I, I have to say, don't get your hopes I've up. I've got my hopes up. No, don't. <laughs> it, is, it is truly wonderful that... Uh, this villa just outside Herculaneum, the neighbouring town to Pompeii, um, is the only place where what was clearly an ancient library survived. But it survived so that all the scrolls, 
kind of got carbonized by the the volcanic debris yeah. and it's it was discovered in the 18th century and people have always wanted to unroll the scrolls they tried to early on because they completely wrecked them by trying to unroll them and you know computer technology and a bit of ai is helping us read these the only trouble is you know we would like to think here are some of the lost poems of sappho you know or the lost books of Livy or Nero's mum's autobiography, which she wrote, and it's my, you know, that's the one I'd like, and it would. 99% of the uh, scrolls that have been unrolled or, or computerized unrolled are by a third-rate philosopher called Philodemus. <laughs> and the, the last one that's been all over the papers... That, right, another book, and everybody think, yeah, maybe this would be really interesting. And it's another bloody work of Philodemus. <laughs> Presumably, the person who owned this library <laughs> was dead keen on Philodemus. He might have been Philodemus. He might have been his if Phil- only. Philodemus's mum. Yeah, his mum. <laughs> Keep a yeah. copy full yeah. of his bits and bobs. But things, you know, things turn up in you know old libraries on the back of you know like. The, the, being reused? Or is that the most... Yeah, the... uh, they're, they're turning up all the time. I mean, there's uh, one of the kind of least well-known but ought to be much better-known writers from the ancient world is a doctor called Galen. Yeah. Now, in Planet of the Apes as well. He's in Planet of the Apes. He's very well-known. He's in Planet... He's two characters oh, in Planet of the Apes. Is he? Oh. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Sorry. I'll, I'll reuse that. Um, I, he is so prolific. He writes in Greek. He is so prolific that 10% of all surviving ancient Greek literature is actually written by Galen, right? And it's things like on the aorta um, <laughs> and you know, on the principles of the stomach and things like that. It's medical writing, yeah. highly technical medical writing. But just occasionally he kind of opens up about all sorts of other things. He, he's actually the... the um, the doctor to the emperor Marcus Aurelius, and he describes how he gives Marcus Aurelius an anal suppository, which I've always thought was the first known anal suppository in the West, I think, <laughs> administered by Galen to Marcus Aurelius. But quite extraordinarily, uh, only about 20 years ago, there's a graduate student in a Greek monastery library. And he, he was going through the manuscripts in this monastery library. He was waiting for what he really wanted to be um, brought up. And he, was, he looked at this and thought, he must have been a rather learned graduate student. He said, bloody hell, that's a lost work of Galen, right? <laughs> and it was a lost work of Galen in which Galen, who had had most of his possessions destroyed in a major fire in Rome at the end of the second century, writes a short essay trying to come to terms with the loss of his possessions on, on how to transcend grief. Yeah. And that had been sitting there for hundreds of years in plain sight until a French grad student happens to notice it. Yeah. And, you know, that, the stuff like that comes up all the time. Yeah, and there must be loads, you know. Loads of it. I mean, it's because, I suppose, the reason, I, I, like, Anglo-Saxon England, you might not find much stuff, is because Anglo-Saxon England's all in one place. Whereas, <laughs> and, it's, and it's a place where everyone's fighting each other yeah. and burning stuff. Uh, whereas Rome was quite, pretty big. So even if everything got wiped out in Rome, there was yeah. the eastern part yeah. of the Roman yeah. Empire where yeah. things would survive. And, you know, the stuff from Roman Egypt yeah. were... You know, what was written on papyrus, buried in sand, just survives, you know. And yeah. so you just get the contents of the waste paper baskets. And, you know, that's another guy that we looked at in our um, Being Roman series. It's a, it's a kind of series of what would now be done by email. It's a series of basically the ancient equivalent of emails. A, a poor kind of rather grumpy middle manager in Roman Egypt who is trying to organise a, a visit of the Emperor Diocletian. And he's got to get, you know, and it makes 
organising a visit of the king now look like child's play. You know, he's, he's got to get the bakery done. He's got to kind of work out how many pigs he needs in order to feed this unknown-sized imperial party. And he's sitting there in his office, firing off. And he's saying to the people in the nearby village, get the bakery set up. And they write back and say, well, I don't think it's our business to get the bakery. You know, it's not, you know, we never asked Archletion to come. You know, why should we do this? And you have just a few days of this poor bugger's <laughs> frustrated emails about how to get this visit organised. We don't know what happened in the end because it just breaks off. Um, uh, we don't actually even know if Diocletian ever went there. You know, it could have been he was expected but never showed up. Yeah. But, uh, and for me, it's, it's exciting because it's what we're, what, what we're told doesn't exist. You know, yeah. and well, it's taken me about 50 years almost of being a professional classicist to see that this stuff does exist. We can get to this. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, I'm quite interested in the top guys and the, the generals, so, you know, and I'm interested in what, what elite Romans wrote. They're very smart often. But to be able to see that with the real life of these people, yeah. it's... You know, it keeps you going for a whole lifetime. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's, I just love... I mean, I love it when, when history... You know, history should be about people and, it, and you should be touched by the humanity and the humour across the years. I love the bit in the book about uh, the first... the graffito of... Um, the first ever depiction of the crucifixion yeah. in, that's yeah. known of. Yeah. A fir- the, probably... The, it's a bit hard to date, but yeah. probably the first known depiction of the crucifixion was actually must have been others but this is the first known one was actually done by a slave in the roman imperial palace and there is it's extraordinary because it got a cross and there's jesus on the cross but jesus has got a donkey's head and there's a guy underneath uh praying to Jesus in a kind of ancient way of prayer, which is kind of putting his hands up. And there's a little bit of writing in Greek, which says, Alexamenos, guy's name, is worshipping his God. Now, it's a piss take. Yeah. You know, that uh, there's one slave has got, a, you know, a fellow slave who's a Christian. And they think this is really barking mad. And so they do, you know, he does a little picture of Alex Amenos worshipping a donkey. Now, who would ever have thought that the first known representation of the crucifixion was a parody? Yeah. It's already a parody. Yeah. And it's already hostile. And also, it's quite interesting that the imperial slaves, are, you know, are cottoning on to Christianity long before the emperors are. <laughs> you know, emperors, meanwhile, are actually killing the Christians. But uh, in the downstairs at the palace, there's, you know, there's young guys who are worshipping and said donkeys. And how delighted would you be to know that your bit of graffiti taking the piss out of your mate lasted 2,000 years <laughs> and people were still mentioning his name and calling him a dick? That would be just the best thing, wouldn't it? Yeah. But, you know, and some of them, I think, are kind of touching. I went to look, there's one part of the Roman Imperial Palace where you can still see these graffiti. And they're very faint, but you can. And I went up to, to have a look at it a, a couple of months ago. And uh, we were looking at this one, which has been taken to a museum, the, the crucifixion, is very famous. Um, but we went down to look at the others in, in this slave quarters. And there was... Mostly, or some of it is kind of Roman filth. You know, Roman slaves were just as filthy and smutty as their masters, and there's plenty of penises all around this place. Um, But there was also a guy who said um, that he came from, just signed his name, said he came from Kherson in Ukraine. And you thought, blind me, that's a kind of geopolitical match. He'd be amazed... Yeah. to think that we were still talking, although in a, a rather very uncomfortable way, yeah. 
that we're talking about the place that this guy proudly said he came from. And you think there's a sort of sense that you are kind of reaching out over centuries to some guy who says, I come from Ukraine. Yeah. No, it's, it's terrific. Uh, the book's really lovely, and, you know, and you're... It does, you know, you think... It, it covers stuff you don't think about, like emperors going on holiday and what that, what that would involve and what emperors did in their spare time. Um, I, I, that's very interesting, I can tell you. Yeah, and, um, you know, what, they, what people ate and, you know, but exactly that, you finding these... I think both these together... Um, the, the the podcast and the and the book you know give you a lovely glimpse. I mean, you know, it's it's supposedly men think about the Roman Empire more than they think about sex nowadays. Do we believe that? I don't know if that's quite true, but they think about it. Suppose that's the fifteen that's new times argue. a day. Yeah. There was this extraordinary TikTok. I, I think about Romans having sex fifteen times a day, a day, so that so I can just keep them both going at the same time. I think about the Romans all the time. <laughs> yeah. you know? You're the outlier of being a, a woman who does it, but it's meant to be, it's meant to be men. Who... Yeah. And I, I, why do you think they do it? I mean, I think they do think about you know, it. It's a safe space for fantasising about sex. I think it's also a safe space for, you know, being macho. Yeah. Right? You know, I think about the Roman Empire. What do you, they don't think I might be a slave in the Roman Empire. They think about, you know zapping the Gauls yes. and, you know, wearing those silly little military skirts, swashbuckling, <laughs> you know, through... And it's fine, you know. It's, it's somehow, it's all right to say, I think about the Roman Empire lots because it's so far away. You know, you couldn't say without getting arrested, I think about the Third Reich 15 <laughs> times a day, you know. That would, you know, that would, that would not be, um, you know, but you can... You can say it about the Roman Empire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just think... I just can't get over, with, throughout all your work, but obviously all the other work of all the amazing stories you've covered this period, just how much information we've got, you know, for something that should be... Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I especially love it when you, when it, when it, when you pinpoints... Well, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm one of the radio shows... You've, it's about a, a, a man mar- marrying a woman who was probably his slave or was his slave. But you, you find both, probably both of their tombs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and just the wall. idea that, that, that they both, that the, that those both still exist and they, they were together, however mm. weird the relationship may have been, uh, and, is, is, re- is really lovely. And he's on Hadrian's Wall, but he comes from Syria. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when people say... Um, you know, there was no migration to this country, yeah. you know, until the 1950s. Well, Baratis from Palmyra is a good example of a very early bit of migration. What he was doing on Hadrian's, well, we don't know. No. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's lovely. And it's, lo- it's lovely to think of those things surviving and, you know, uh, yeah. how it happened. Yeah. He, I mean, he puts up the, the uh, tombstone to his dead wife... Um, who comes from kind of... She's got an Essex girl, really. Um, and she's called Queenie Regina. And he says that she, she was an ex-slave. Yeah. And it's only a few lines of Latin. And the bottom, he's got just a few words of Aramaic saying, Barati's in grief, alas. Right? And I just think, who the hell... in Because it's in South Shields... Who the hell in South Shields, in the middle of the second century, could inscribe words in Aramaic? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's and extraordinary. Um, I'd better ask you a couple of merch questions before we go. I've got to, I've, because, you know, you were on one of the, you were on, the, I think, the 18th episode of this podcast, and we've had a few since then. <laughs> so thank you for trusting us and coming on early. Um, so I haven't asked you loads of things, and I have to ask you this emergency question, which is if all the art galleries and I presume museums in the world, maybe for you, got together and said we'd like to give you one item that you're allowed to keep from any museum. And it's a hard question for you, Mary. Is there any artefact that you would like to own or that you would like to take away and have as your, have as your own, or oh, is there one thing that you particularly gosh. like out of everything you've... Um. Can I say, I mean, I said this when I did Desert Island Discs. All oh, right, okay, that's fine. Um, and I think that... Um, More people listen to this. Please... So. <laughs> this will get please, can you not put it in the local paper? Um, <laughs> I, and be very careful what I'm going to say. I'd like just to borrow the Parthenon marbles <laughs> okay. for a little while. I, I, will, I will give them back. I only want... I just, just borrow them for just a few hours. Yeah. 
all right? And then give them wherever they should go back, yes. which, of course, is a very much debated question. Good. <laughs> very good answer. Um, Mary Beard, if you could go into a chrysalis and, like a caterpillar, and dissolve and come out as anything you wanted, what would you choose to emerge from the caterpillar at the does it, chrysalis? Does it have to be human? It could be anything you want. Oh, blind! Doesn't even have to be alive. Could be anything. Oh, I think I'd like to be a cat. Would you actually? Yeah, okay. You know, a very well, a rather posh cat, a yeah. pampered, well looked after cat. Okay. You know, where I didn't have, you know, I didn't have to bother about, you know, killing things and finding food. I was, yeah, there'd be some whiskers uh, for you. Yeah, I was just, I was, you know, it was all kind of. You know, pre-prepared food. You know, kind of. Did you say that on Desire and Discs? I, no, I, did, I didn't say it on Desire and Discs. They didn't ask. That's me. why this they is better. This is why me. this is better than Desire and Discs. Um, cool. Look, what, do, you, do you know what's coming next? Are you working? You must be working on your next book. Do you know? I'm having a bit of time off. Are you? Yeah. You know, I, sh- I am. I'm. Well, look, I'm nearly seventy. You know, you don't plan for the future when you're nearly 70. You think, well, maybe if, when the time comes, I might do something else. But actually, I'm having a little... Well, I'm doing things like this. Yeah, good. You know, you know which, is, which is fun. I, I um, If there was a serious thing that I'm going to do, is going to be a little book on what is the point of studying Latin and Greek. Okay. <laughs> It'll be brief. <laughs> well, I wish I, you know, that's my, my regret is that I did, we, for some reason, we had an amazing, we had Latin at our school, we had, just as like a throwback, I think, to, and we had an amazing Latin teacher, Mr. Moore, who I thought was about 70, but I think he's still alive, so he can't, he can't, he, he, he must, 28. He, must, he had grey hair, so I thought he must be real. Uh, I think he's still alive, but he was a wonderful teacher, and he really got me into Latin, and it would have been very useful for me to carry on Latin, and I stopped, because I wasn't allowed to do it in my O-level choices, that's how old I am, that's history, O-levels. Uh, and uh, that, so I, I kind of regret, you know, Caecilius Estin Archie. Estin Horto. Yeah, so I, I missed, you know, I'd like to go back to that. I, got, I, I, I went ahead in all those books, I loved them so much. I bought them, they, you can buy them still, uh, but I couldn't get my head around it now. It's it was, not too late, Richard, it's yeah, not too late. It is, it's too late. And, <laughs> and also you can just do it on a computer now, can't you? It'll just tell you. Just a voice will go, this is this, just what does this mean? It means this, it'll be a, um, yeah, I'm not going to, you know. Don't, you know, don't believe him. Don't believe him. <laughs> um, but look, I, I really, really appreciate uh, you uh, coming on the podcast. It's lovely to see you. It's always lovely to see you. And, and um, do go and if you if you want to buy, I'd re- absolutely recommend. Are they selling all your books out there? There, there are loads of them. They're selling loads of books. Uh, they're all signed, uh, and. You can get it dedicated, but we've got to be quick because we can't have the audience not getting back in time for the second half. I mean, you've got a whole week till next week's show, Mary, so it should should be. There's a whole week. It shouldn't take too long. Um, (laughs) But thanks so much. And I really massively recommend the book and the podcast uh, and uh, whatever comes next. And SPQR is great as well. It just took me a long time to to find the right format. Uh, Daz Boot, I've got in four formats, and I've never... I've never watched a fucking second of it. I've got the book, I've got the DVD, I've got the extended DVD, I've got the video. Never watched a fucking bit of it. So I've got, I've got through SPQR. And that's what you want to hear as an author. I've got through it. It's brilliant as well. And the, the book on Pompeii, which is the first book I read of yours, is absolutely amazing as well. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the amazing Mary Beard. See you next week. You have been listening to Rahalastama Book Club with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Mary Beard. I uh, thank you to Scant Regard for providing the music. We don't usually have that on the book club. It's nice, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) I'm indebted to my friend and producer, Chris Evans, not that one. And thank you also to Beckcliffe and George Lingford for all their very hard work on tour. Thank you to everyone at... uh, the Mercury Theatre in Colchester and everyone who came. It was such a delight. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFasterStripe.com production.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Do come and see me on tour. RichardHerring.com slash gigs is the easiest way to find out where I'm going. And GoFasterStripe.com. You can buy books and downloads. And just tell your friends about the podcast. If you can't make it to the tour show, if you don't want to buy any products, then every time you listen to an advert, you're helping... Let's make more podcasts with a very, very tiny micro payment. So thank you very much for that. I love you all. It's lovely to meet you on tour, by the way. Hello to everyone who's said hello so far. Do come say hello after the show if you if enjoyed it, if you want to see me. That'd be nice. You can get a selfie. I don't care. I'm a selfie whore. All right. See you soon.